I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Now, I'm an optimist when it comes to central bank digital currencies, but even I've got to admit that every once in a while, you hear the case for CBDCs sounding a little like the stories of mythical unicorns you hear about in fairy tales. And in these moments, the story seems to be watered down to the argument that if you can get a major central bank digital currency up and running, it can gallop across the globe, pointing people to that hidden pot of digital gold or fiat currencies that will transform how people spend their money while also magically transforming transactions between the biggest banks and commercial actors, making them much more efficient and less costly, all with no downsides. But central bank digital currencies can come with trade-offs. Some critics point to political and privacy concessions that warrant concern. Meanwhile, others point to larger infrastructure and operational questions. Rarely, however, is the very macroeconomic theory behind CBDCs itself questioned, which is why I'm quite interested in hearing from today's guests. We have on our show two insiders, Tony McLaughlin, and Isabella Kaminsky, who have been thought leaders in critiquing what CBDCs could mean for not only banks, but also for the monetary system. Now, Tony is the Managing Director of Emerging Payments and Business Development in Citigroup's Treasury and Trade Solutions business. Isabella, meanwhile, is the rock star editor of FT Alphaville. Together, they have spoken to nearly all of the major players in the CBDC space, but have a different take on where the projects are headed and the possible stumbling blocks they may encounter. Tony, Isabella, thanks so much for making it onto the show. Absolutely, Chris. I've never had such a good introduction. Thanks for having me. It's very kind of you to describe me as a rock star. Well, thank you so very much to both of you for making it on. And you guys are both rock stars. Um, Many of our listeners are familiar with the basics of central bank digital currencies. And for those that aren't, we have uh, great earlier conversations with the IMF that they can listen to. But maybe just to get a running start, Um, Maybe you can share with us why central banks are interested in evolving traditional forms of money. Um, I think fundamentally, the issue is about cash and how cash evolves, because cash is um, becoming uh, more and more sort of uh, not used in society. And once cash use really whittles down to almost nothing, there's an argument that central banks kind of lose control of the monetary system. Um, it's not that we haven't had digital systems in place before. We, you know, currently most of us use banking services, so digital cash is there. It's just that the digital cash we use is pretty much private sector based. And the central banks would like to have a contingency for if and when the anchor to their monetary policy, which is cash, um, on the retail level disappears. Is that your sense as well? Is the focal point of CBDCs centering on a dissatisfaction with cash? Or uh, are are there other economic considerations as well? 
So the way um, I think about it is that, you know, most money is a liability. Um, you know, mo- the, the experience that we have in, you know, when we think of money, it's actually a private liability. The money sitting on your bank account is on the bank's balance sheet and they owe you the money and they'll give you the money back on demand. So that's a private sector liability. Um, central bank money is unique because it comes with no counterparty risk, or at least it comes with only sovereign counterparty risk. So it's a liability essentially against the full faith and credit of the state. And so what this central bank digital currency argument comes down to is whether there's a case for expanding access to public liabilities. You know, Tony, the question of liabilities and counterparty risk, it's, it's, it's really interesting how it plays out since you're basically asking whether or not there is risk arising when someone other than yourself holds your money. Uh, I've read some of your work uh, noticing that admirers of stablecoins, cryptocurrencies, and central bank digital currencies all love the idea of digitizing money, but they just don't like each other's money. And in some ways, it comes down to to counterparties, doesn't it? Um, and, and central bankers are putting forward in pretty uncertain terms that, that theirs is best. Well, there's a, a few different arguments which are presented. Um, some people think that uh, a ubiquitous central bank digital currency an additional tool for central bankers to implement monetary policy. Uh, that's one argument. Others believe that a broader access to these, this public liability would um, reduce settlement risk in the economy. Again, the, one of the key features about central bank money is it displays something called finality of settlement, meaning that, that that transaction cannot be unwound by a bankruptcy proceeding, for example. So there are, are different um, arguments. The other thing I think is that the central banks, in response to the emergence potentially of, of stable coins, um, are thinking about whether they need to reassert their sovereignty over what is money in the economy. Isabel, you know, I've, like so many other people, follow your writings uh, pretty religiously, and, and you have really interesting things that you've said about uh, central bank digital currencies. And, and you've even had an, an evolution in your views um, in, in terms of what you see as their, their, their use case uh, value and also what they mean for the monetary system. Maybe could you walk us through sort of where you started in terms of this dialogue and this debate about CBDCs, and and where are you finding yourself now after, um, obviously, uh, many discussions that you've had with with people both in industry and with other economists? Big question. But, um, I mean, my views have definitely evolved, but my views are also highly influenced by the fact that I am Polish, and come from a family that, you know, experienced communism and state-run uh, services. So um, so I would say the starting point is really my view that a lot of the risk that uh, emerged in 2008, I don't think this is a popular theory, it's just something that I think contributed a lot and is underappreciated, was indirectly the digitization of cash um, and the RTGS system being sort of a conduit towards greater kind of um, uh, tr- transfer of of, di- of 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 people's sort of core liquidity to the banking system um, and the expectation amongst people that 
deposits held at banks are one and the same as cash uh, held in your hand, like physical cash. Um, and I think that's really where the banks kind of took advantage of, of very, you know, effectively very cheap sources of funding indirectly because people were not aware of the risks. People were not aware of the fact that your NatWest deposits uh, were not the same thing as cash, right? And when we had 2008 um, and we had this issue with QE and scarcity of safe assets and all of that stuff, it seemed very... Um, logical to me at the time that uh, when there's a scarcity of safe assets, perhaps, you know, we could have a CBDC, well, I called it e-money, you know, I, and, and, you know, I put this out years ago, like before it was cool to talk about this stuff, not to sound up myself, but, um, but I did. <laughs> I wrote posts like the time for e-money is now. And my basic premise, and I was pitching like, like an e-euro, um, was that if there's a scarcity of safe assets, people want to hold in times of panic, their uh, their core cash, you know, fortunes at a central bank or somewhere like, you know, as described, you know, somewhere with fin finality um, of settlements and, and and essentially a trustworthy source. Um, so why not? And then there was the Ken Rogoffian view, and, and I was very much on board with that. But then having self-criticising uh, crit myself, um, I realised that there were really big downsides and I don't want to go into them too much now but um it's not as easy as that so you can transfer a lot of the risks onto the central balance sheet but you can't get rid of the risk and you create new types of risks and one of the new type there are three types of risks I put put down to central bank money one is uh the competition issue and crowding out of banks and whether that's really healthy and whether that leads to a sort of ghost bank issue what happens on the asset side of the central banks because through that state banking sort of evolution the central bank then becomes responsible for deciding who gets the liquidity and how much of it and and where and the third one is the privacy uh paradox because even if you have tokenized um uh, structures on central banks uh, currency the issue is that you um you, you can't you can't then also enforce AML KYC. So something's got to give. So that's really interesting. Uh, you, you start off with, on the one hand, why not create a safe asset that people can hold in turbulent times, one that people know is essentially a safe store of value? And, and the assumption here is that it should be held at a central bank, given the risks we see during the 2008 financial crisis. And, and then you say, after kicking the tires a bit, hey, this doesn't really get rid of risks, but but transforms them instead in different kinds of ways, including in ways that can affect how the private banking system operates. Uh, Tony, when listening to Isabella and and, and reading her, her her writings, did these kinds of concerns resonate with you, or did other kinds of trade offs come to mind? No, you know, let's think about terms of the the structure of balance sheets in an economy. And so, for example, in the US, there are 5,000 banks or more. In, in Europe, there are 5,000 banks or more. Those are 5,000 balance sheets. And again, the, the money in those balance sheets on the liability side is what we consider as being money, those private claims. Um, if you have a central bank digital currency, then deposits uh, potentially will be concentrated into the central bank. And my point would be is that you, you cannot change the market for private liabilities without having a knock-on effect into the private market for assets. 
So you can't just concentrate all the deposits in the central bank without changing the very nature of commercial banking. And after all, commercial banks lend money, and that's why there is counterparty risk against commercial banks. So my point is this, which is, you know, some people argue that we should have central bank digital currency because there's no counterparty risk against the central bank. But counterparty risk in our financial system isn't a bug. It's a feature. There's counterparty risk against commercial banks because commercial banks lend money. So this, I think, gets to the heart of it. It's the structure of the balance sheets in the economy. Do we want to actually, and again, we've talked about the ironies of um, digital currencies. Do we want to centralize the deposits of an economy into a central bank? Um, Don't we already... Isn't it also potentially the case that central banks are are maybe outweighed in terms of their role in this free market system? So I think we have to be very careful about the structure of balance sheets in an economy and think very carefully about the impact of a ubiquitous central bank digital currency. I think I want to unwind all of this just to make sure that we're all sort of on the on the page. So so from from what I, I I'm gathering. Both of you are, are a little bit worried about the following scenario, that ultimately, if, if you do have a central bank digital currency, and if that central bank digital currency is a kind of digital currency that anyone can access or, or, or use, the, the question is, well, well, why would I hold my money in the form of you know, uh, uh, some kind of money held in a, in a bank, in a private bank, when that bank can fail? Right, that's the logic, and so everyone is going to sort of decamp and then move their money to a a central bank where there is presumably more certainty and security. But what you're observing is, well, then if you take all the money out of the commercial banks and you put it in the central bank, now the commercial banks don't have the ability anymore to lend their money out. Basically, they're no longer the Origins of money creation in, in in the system. Instead, it's it's the central bank. It, um, uh, wh- what does this mean then for the monetary system, Isabella? And 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 what would the movement or the decamping of deposits from a commercial bank to to the central banks possibly mean when it comes to this line of criticism that you've um, that you're developing? Well, it's basically um, the old argument about full reserve banking, because you're basically recreating a full reserve system where, um, you know, all all the risk is now on the sovereign balance sheets in terms of liquidity. Um, and if banks are to do lending, they have to do it by on a much higher equity level. So I, as a depositor, would go well, I'm prepared to, um, you know, fund that bank, but um, I'm doing it on a on a completely different level um, than when I was doing it as a depositor, uh, where the bank could um, take, you know, X amount of my shares, whatever regulatory environment you're in, um, X amount of my pots without me knowing, right? All the money I'm putting in the bank is at risk. It's a completely different sort of scenario. Um, so there's there's that sort of massive structural change. Now, theoretically, you know, there's a lot of economists, there's a lot of people out there who think that would be better, it would be a much more prudent way to run the economy. Um, But the flip side of that argument is that the cost of funding may go up a lot um, 
And if not enough people, if there's a sort of risk averse mood in the market, then the only way banks can like get the money they need to do uh, lending is through, you know, essentially what would happen in China, which is when when the PBOC would 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 decide on its own course which bank, which state bank, and which you know whether it's the agricultural bank or it's the industrial bank or whatever, they would then inject the money directly, and it would be much more state led, um, and that's a fundamental transformation of what what we have had until now, which is a sort of distributed, competitive environment where different banks are taking different positions on different people's risk. So it, it's really courses for courses. But I, you know, my general feeling is that um, a market-based system, which isn't completely uh, one or the other, like a hybrid system like we had before, is probably the best option. And unfortunately, I now worry that CBDCs are going to walk us towards full reserve banking without really having a debate about it. And and that's what I find concerning because the CBDC um, discussion is all on the technological side of the conversation, not about these core structural issues. You know, Tony, you've, you've uh, noticed that uh, CBDCs are still um, systems that should be at least compared, uh, you know, to other e-money solutions. You know, uh, and, and you know, what did you have in mind as to sort of these other e-money solutions, and why is e-money then relevant to the list of concerns that Isabella is is identifying? Well, look, e-money is um, more, I feel like, an analogy that's useful when we're analyzing the sta- stable coins. Um, you know, because stable coins, some of the models have been introduced um, in, in a way that these issuers of the stable coins try to maintain some form of sta- stability, but they don't actually, they're not actually on the hook for redeeming at par value. Um, you know, in, the, in, in many parts of the world, e-money operators, um, wallet operators have attracted hundreds of millions of customers and e-money regulations have built up in the following way. Number one is that the e-money, which is issued by this non-bank but regulated entity, is a direct claim against the issuing institution. The second point is that that, the nature of that claim is that you have to redeem at par value on demand. Now, a central bank digital currency would meet that test. Um, There would be a direct claim on the central bank. You would be able to redeem the notion of the par value on demand. But that's not something that is a feature of many of the proposed stablecoin schemes. And, and that potentially generates a regulate, regulatory arbitrage because you have these e-money operators who are working in a particular way with particular constraints, and then the potential for, an, for a model to come across that flexes some of those constraints. So that's more, the, the comparison with e-money is more of a, a way of analyzing the potential downsides of some stablecoin models. Looking then at then these uh, sort of stablecoin um, alternatives, uh, Isabella, I mean, do, do you view stablecoins then as a particularly good alternative to the risk that you're identifying? Or um, alternatively, could just CBDCs be designed in ways that directly uh, speak to your concerns without jettisoning the, 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 the overall CBDC project altogether? I mean, stable coins are my, my 
my take on stable coins is that they're being pitched as something really new and sexy, but they've actually been around for years and years and years. And arguably they're the, a big part of the story that has brought risk into the into the system in levels we didn't on, on levels we didn't really understand. So my, you know, stable coins are a kind of quasi money market fund in many ways. That you know, their promise is to uh, retain par value and be liquid enough to be you know easily redeemed um, on on demand. Right. So there's very similar quality to money market funds. Money market money market funds and shadow banks were one of the reasons we ended up with like a lot of the uncertainty and risk in 2008. Um, I've always argued, you know, PayPal is also a type of money market fund. When you look to China, you look at Alipay, you look at um, Yubao. Well, there's a reason why Yubao emerged from Alipay because um, it is a natural sort of um, aspect of a money payments, uh, of a payment system to have this sort of pool of capital that sits there that has to be protected at par and you have to invest it in something. Now, money transmission uh, rules kind of dictate how and where you can put that capital and maintain your your risk levels and and your promises to your clients, right? So um, if you're a money transmitter, you're not really allowed to put your your funds into sort of risky securities or whatever, you have to keep them in banks. Now, when Libra came on the scene, it basically said, not only are we going to manage our pool of capital that we get from all our users in a completely outside of the bank system, i.e. we will be investing in assets. It also said that our par value is going to be dictated by some arbitrary level that we dictate because it wasn't going to be a stable coin. It was actually going to be some sort of Libra coin. Um, And that's why central bankers, I think, were particularly concerned about Libra. It's because it wasn't a stable coin. It was like going to be its own numeraire. um, And that meant it was its own kind of currency system in its own right and it could like effectively do what China did back in the 80s um, so stable coins if they are stable it's exactly um, as described the risk is will they be able to defend that par value in a in a extreme scenario and it's not at all clear because the assets that back them um, are the things that will dictate that or not um, and it's very hard for us to, 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 to see that. And, and none of this is new. This is all like Euro, so-called, uh, you know, Euro, Euro bonds and Euro money, uh, Euro dollars. That has, that's basically the same template. So does this then get us back to this original place where we started, right? Which is this question of counterparty risk, right? That, that ultimately, you know, the challenge with the stable coin is, well, you know, when you want to redeem it, you know, uh, are you going to be able to? And, you know, and, and, and will the counterparty be able to ultimately live up to whatever commitments it's made with regards to the redemption of uh, the asset that's apparently backing that, that, that particular uh, instrument? Um, uh, Tony, I mean, what, what, what's your view on this? And, and from your perspective, then, you know, it, how do you view stablecoins as a solution vis-a-vis the, the, the challenges of CBDCs? Um, in their sort of most maximalist conception, that is the conception or the idea that um, individuals have the option of creating bank accounts at the central bank and, and, and could lead to a movement of deposits out of the private banking system. What's the comparative advantages, disadvantages of stable coins? And then alternatively, you know, are there just CBDC des- design features that could um, 
you know, more directly speak to your concerns without sort of throwing the, the CBDC project um, out uh, altogether. So the Bank of England governor recently came up with uh, a list of standards that he would expect stablecoins to meet. Um, one is that the unit of account needs to be national currency and not a synthetic unit. Second, very importantly, is that stablecoins should be a direct claim on the issuer. Third, that the issuer would have the responsibility to redeem on demand at par value. And fourth, that the stablecoin issuer should be regulated in the territory where the stablecoins are circulating. And it seems to me if I uh, you know, check the stablecoin models out there or against that model, very few, if any, um, you know, meet those requirements. And the danger is if stablecoins are allowed to you know, fall between two regulatory stools and be neither securities nor deposits nor um, e-money, then frankly, what you might have is existing e-money operators, you know, people who are, if you like, on the hook to redeem at par value on demand, they may invert to a stablecoin model that ultimately could enable them to move some of the client monies into, into private profits. So I think very, regulators are very much aware of that potential risk. Um, you know, you asked me to compare this with the central bank digital currency project. And in fact, I think what's really happening, you know, we talked about the decline of cash. The reason why uh, cash is declining is because of the success of a thriving private market in digital payments methods. So if you have a thriving, innovative private market for digital payments methods, then you want to maintain innovation and and that dynamic uh, competition. Uh, So it seems to me that we need to evaluate a number of different roads for the future of digital payments. And and these are what I see as being, if you like, the runners and riders. Number one is the original cryptocurrency project, the the public cryptocurrency project, which is essentially will Bitcoin ever make it as money? That's, if you like, runner and rider number one. Um, Second one is the stablecoin model, which really is trying to fix the problems of Bitcoin, make it it stable, and therefore it becomes money. Uh, And then almost as a result of of stablecoin as being a threat to the sovereignty of money, you've got project number three, which is central bank digital currency, which is essentially, hey, let's let everyone open an account with the central bank. But what's not talked about, because maybe it's boring or not sexy. I mean, I've been in payments for 25 years, and believe me, it's never been a sexy subject until the last few years. I'm happy about that. But there's another project, which is what can we do to fix the rails, the kinds of rails that we've got? How can we improve the account-based system? And there are actually many things we can do to fix the account-based system. So I would you know, prejudge the outcome of this race. Uh, but what I wish would happen is that people would stop only drilling down into one option and going through every permutation of one option. We need to look at the, the whole race and the whole game if we're going to make good policy choices. One of the big drivers behind the conversation on CBDCs is the idea of financial inclusion and the notion that from both a cost perspective, uh, the legacy rails haven't been optimal and CBDCs offer the, the theoretical opportunity to expand access to not 
um, only to, to, to banking, but also banking uh, adjacent services. How does that figure into the relative mix of costs and advantages of, of, of trade-offs, I suppose, when you're evaluating the potential optimality of the legacy payments architecture to that of CBDCs? Tony, I'll start with you. So I think um, this comes down to whether central bank digital currencies, you know, number one will be bearer instruments or accounts. So that's one dimension. And the second dimension is whether they will be subject to KYC, know your customer uh, regulations or, or not. Um, so on, on this topic of, uh, you know, financial inclusion, which is, uh, a topic that we have to address in the financial sector uh, generally. It seems to me that if CBDC is a is a bearer instrument, an anonymous bearer instrument with no KYC, um, then potentially that is a way of people accessing digital payments. Uh, but it also comes with tremendous risk. Uh, I think one of the greatest uh, treaties on the dangers of bearer instruments was uh, the movie Die Hard. Where it, you know, Hans, Hans Gruber essentially acted as if he was a terrorist, but at the, at the end of that movie, all he was interested in is getting his hands on the bearer instruments in the safe at the, at the Nakamoto Tower. So, look, I think the, the question really comes down into this trade off between the financial crime risk of bearer instruments and the potential benefits of uh, financial inclusion. But, I mean, if, if, the, if the question was cast in a different way, if people suggested that financial inclusion would be augmented if we allowed banks to open up accounts with no KYC, maybe with a value limit, maybe banks could open up accounts with no KYC up to a value limit of $10,000, that would seem like a relatively ridiculous proposition. So I'm not sure why the idea of a digital bearer instrument is any more ridiculous or any less ridiculous. Isabella, now, you know, Tony has set the bar very high here by making a reference to, to Die Hard. And I myself have many popular cultural references. Uh, but uh, either, you know, by using one yourself, but, but really, uh, you know, seriously looking at, at the merits of, and, and the substance of, of, of his uh, remarks, I mean, how do you view that financial inclusion question? Well, I want to just say that in 2015, I wrote a story called The Die Hard Risk in Your Bank Account. So, um, No way! Oh, that's great. Look, I've not been on a panel with, with someone on this topic that I agree with so much uh, for a long time. Usually it's, you know, quite techie people who are very tech-focused um, and think they can apply technical solutions to what I would say are socioeconomic problems. And they don't recognize the socioeconomic problem that is... Um, really intimately connected to the risk in the system. And I think that's a key issue here. Um, so when you talk about costs and, and financial inclusion, there are really five key points. The cost is a red herring because first of all, we don't know that CBDC systems or token systems are actually cheaper. There's a lot of emerging evidence that they're not cheaper. Um, cash itself was never free, um, and different central bank systems have always taken have taken different policies on whether or not cash should be subsidized by the government or whether not. Um, and in many cases, 
the digitization that we have experienced is a sort of outsourcing by the central bank to the private sector of the cost of digitization. So there was a reason why the central bank didn't want to take that on. And it was better and more economic to do this sort of private uh, public partnership on this front. So, the, so do we really want the central bank to take on the costs of digitization, which come with all sorts of other things like uh, the cost of managing, like, you know, all of us want customer service. So what, every time we have a problem with our CBDC, we're going to call up who? The Bank of England Customer Service Desk? I don't think so. That's a cost in itself, right? Um, and KYC AML is a really big cost in and of itself. But my key takeaway points are that social systems come with risk. And unless everybody in the world is on the same standard, I mean, Brexit tells us really the story I'm talking about, which is that unless everyone is on the same system, it's very hard to remove risk out of the system because we're not talking about technological standards. Um, rather, I would say technological standards are meaningless if the underlying laws uh, across jurisdictions and regulations and uh, enforcement policies are not standard because that's where the risk comes from. And my other point is that we talked a lot about the assets. Um, cost is also related to how well those assets are holding their value. Now, I, pitched, I, I, I mentioned to Libra, what happens if all the assets you've invested customer, customer money in, even though they are safe, become negative interest-bearing assets? Well, somebody's going to have to subsidize the differential. And I said to them, who will do that? Will it be your group leaders, uh, your partner networks? Who's going to do that? And they said, no, we'll probably have to charge the customers. So you're just pushing the costs around. So when you have negative interest-bearing um, assets, it's effectively a quasi-fee that uh, customers have to pay anyway. So, you know, who... I, I'm not at all convinced um, that financial inclusion is going to be improved by any of these systems, is my point. <laughs> what about the national security implications? Tony, I mean, like, you're a jet-setter, global guy running around. I mean, what do you think as as to the, the, the national security um, question when you see, say, China being very heavily involved in the CBDC space? So I think in, in the crypto space, um, not only for crypto investors, but also potentially for policymakers, this, this phenomenon called uh, FOMO, fear of missing out. And it can lead uh, investors and I think policymakers to potentially reach uh, wrong conclusions. Um, there are many things that we can do to augment the position of the US dollar as the preeminent international reserve currency. For example, something a bit more obvious than delivering a CBDC would be to make sure that the US dollar is always available for settlement. And that would mean 24 by 7 RTGS. So I think, um, you know, the reason why the US dollar is in its current position is not so much to do with the, the form of the instrument. It's much more to do with the type of society ha you have, the type of economy you have, the internationalization of your economy, but nevertheless, there are a number of things that could be done to enhance the effectiveness of U.S. payment systems, that's for sure. Isabella, I mean, I don't know to what degree you, you think about the national security, geostrategic uh, question with central bank digital currencies, but, but do you sort of share that, that view? Or do you see um, tokenization as at least potentially, regardless of, of the merits uh, from a purely monetary perspective, as offering certain kinds of state actors 
a competitive advantage over others. Well, no, I, I just hear a lot that, you know, the reason we're, we're having to do this is because China's doing it. And my my very simplistic view is since when was emulating a one-party state system seen as desirable in the Western state-like system? Like, that's what I don't get. Why is the Chinese, like, create, which, you know, the Chinese model, which has this horrifically, you know, intrusive social credit system that can abuse um, all that power that it um, absorbs into this CBDC that it's issuing. Okay, so, so it comes out with its own CBDC. Well, the digital yuan, it, I don't see why it should be any more competitive than the conventional yuan. There are so many different factors regarding what you know, makes for a good reserve currency. And it's not just about it being easily accessible, digital. You know, there's also the rule of law and, and, and whether or not you can trust the counterparty. And as far as I know, Chinese counterparties are not entirely as trustworthy as, 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 as American ones. So I'm, I'm not convinced that's a good reason to rush into things. And my only closing thought on security is also, I think, I feel like COVID is also being used as an excuse to rush into these things without doing proper due diligence and testing of the systems. And, you know, using a COVID analogy, you know, there's a reason why vaccines take a long time to come to market. We're supposed to really properly test them. And I think the same should be applied to CBDCs. Tony, Isabella, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Tony, it was really lovely to hear from you. <laughs> Popular culture is actually a pretty useful tool for describing really technical topics. And since this week's guest brought up one classic, the movie Die Hard, I'll bring up another, The Matrix. Remember when Agent Smith had tackled Neo in the subway? You hear that, Mr. Anderson? That is the sound of inevitability. Now, I gotta admit, I'm a little like Agent Smith in this discussion. My hunch is that CBDCs in some form or another, are likely to comprise an important component of central bank infrastructures and that authorities may well end up tweaking the designs and transactional policies to limit any flight of customer deposits from commercial banks. But then again, there is a wealth of competition and upgrades to existing architectures or alternatives like stablecoins that could figure out ways to raise the regulatory game. So I could be wrong. After all, remember what happened to Agent Smith. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C H R I S B R U M M E R D R. We'd love to hear from you.